Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And if you are taking notes, the title of my message is Popcorn, Poetry, and Pregnancy. Popcorn, Poetry, and Pregnancy. And some of you are like, I can already see how these dots connect. I don't even think we need to talk more about it. Um, but do you? I mean, we're going to go, we may go a different direction than you're assuming. Uh, the popcorn piece is really a, a confession that I'll make to you. And that is like my family, we have this tradition where when we're going to watch a movie, a family movie, my wife makes popcorn and she makes it like this special way and she makes it over the stove and then she has this butter and this sea salt that she puts on it. And then she takes M&M's and she just like, you know, like flakes them into there and they just get all melty to where the, the, the chocolate on the inside is just perfectly melty, but on the outside it's that, that thin candy shell. It does its job, you know what I mean? And just the salt and the sugar and the butter, and it's just like, it's perfect. It is the perfect snack. And so we'll have a family movie, and then my wife will make up this big popcorn, and she'll have like these little bowls that she has. And I, I mean, I shouldn't call them little. They're actually pretty giant. Uh, there's giant mixing bowls, and we each grab one, and then we're all sitting around our couches, and we're, we're having popcorns and m and we love it. And, uh, and you know, it's just something we really do only for movie nights. Uh, but then after a while, we started thinking, like, maybe we should watch movies more often, you know? <laughs> and so there's, like, a few more, like, the movie nights were getting closer together. And so then the pop, obviously, you can't do the movie without the popcorn and the M&Ms. And so then that's getting closer together. And so we're doing that more often. And then there were sort of nights where uh, Gretchen and I looked at each other and we just thought, uh, you know, the kids were already in bed and we're not really going to watch a movie. But we're like, do we even need to include the kids in this? Is this something that we could do maybe? And so we made popcorn and M&Ms and we felt like that went really well hand in hand with uh, crime TV shows that my wife forces me to watch. And so we did that for a while. And, uh, and then after a while, it was just kind of like, do we even need to have a show that we're watching? Can't you just have a delicious treat? You know what I mean? Just because it's great. And one day I looked up and I'm like, we're doing popcorns and M&Ms every night, right? Every single night we're doing it. And, uh, and, and after a while, you start to realize that there's something wrong with your shirts. <laughs> They're not fitting right. Something's going on with the dryer. So we tried to get it fixed. And the guy was like, there's nothing wrong with the dryer. And I'm like, I beg to differ. <laughs> These shirts are... And, uh, and he noticed uh, 75 boxes of popcorn on our counter, and he's like, mm. and so, you know, it's like that sort of thing. We're like, let's back off. And so we do. We're like, you know what? Time out. We just got a little out of control. Let's back it off, and let's just go back to once in a while when we're having a family movie night, we can do the popcorns and m and uh, because it's not healthy. And we were like, yeah, that's true. We, and we did. We, we pulled it way back. And we got it under control. And in fact, we only bought the popcorns and m and stuff the nights we were going to have it so we wouldn't have it around the house. And things were going really well for about three months. And then we started doing the same sort of stuff where we're like, you know what? We, do we have to only have one movie? And we just, it starts snowballing. I look up two weeks later and I'm like, dang it, if we aren't doing this every night again, just again, how did we get back here? And we knew how we got back there. We wanted to be back there even though we didn't. 
And this is a cycle, I'll be real with you guys, this is a cycle we've been going through for like six years. We get some freedom, and then we crawl right back, you know, and every time we're like, Lord, you got to deliver us, and he's just like, I, this one's on you guys, I don't know, I'm trying to help you, but you got to help yourselves. And the reason I bring this up is because I think we all have something like this. Uh, and the reason we do, we have this stuff that comes back over and over again, these habits that we, we, we think we've broken and then we didn't and then we kind of did, but then we got to go back and then it's, we're caught up in it again. Is because habits are really hard to break. The issue is that, that maybe the thing that you can't shake is even more severe than this thing. Maybe your thing is just like, man, I, okay, flirting with people at the gym that are not the person I'm married to overcharging my credit card over and over again until it gets full. And then you're like, oh, man, I got to stop this or get another one. And we just keep going down that road, overreacting in meetings at work and then having to clean up the mess you made afterwards. I think we have all, like, uh, hit certain pain points that caused us to swear off whatever our thing is. And maybe you even took action and you got some distance between you and whatever that was. And when you did, you felt great about it. And you felt like you were a better person. You liked yourself more. And in that moment, you just felt like, man, it's not just benefiting me. It's benefiting the people around me. And you told yourself, I am never going to go back to that thing again. And you meant it. And you didn't go back. At least for a while until you did, because this is what we all do. And what happens in these moments is, especially for those of us that it was a really hard thing to overturn and we got a little distance from it, we were so vocal about our recovery back then that now we feel like we can't fess up to our relapse now. And we feel trapped. And so what do we do? We all do the same thing, we hide. We don't wanna admit that it happened. So we hide it. And now we're right back where we started, feeling twice as bad, still doing the thing we said we were never going to do, harboring a secret. We have no idea how to unburden. And I got to tell you, nobody wants to believe that when they get some distance from something, that they're going to relapse. But at the same time, you are most likely to go back to a bad habit when you become convinced that you never will. And this is why this is so dangerous. How many people do you know in your life that were just like, oh, yeah, man, that was a long time ago, and I think I'm good. And then two weeks later, you're like, uh-oh, wow. Something went awry with them. In fact, the New Testament authors talk a lot about this phenomenon. Um, the Apostle Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says this, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Another translation says, look out, you're about to fall. <laughs> it's very overconfident. Like at that moment where you're just like, I feel like I am on top of this, then that's usually the moment where you trip up and you make a mistake because our addictions are always waiting for us to ignore them so that they can regain power over us. And here's why this happens. Our, in our overconfidence, it convinces us that we no longer need to do what made us better. But the issue is, when you stop doing what you did to get better, it's almost impossible to stay better. 
when you stop doing what you did to get free, it's really difficult to stay free. And that's frustrating because we just want to conquer things and then just move on and be done with them forever. And some things you can do that with and other things you can't do that with. And what's annoying is those things aren't the same things from person to person, which a lot of times leaves us into this place where we're like, why am I still struggling with this thing and they're fine? That's not fair. Like, when am I going to be done? I should be over this by now. Why is it still happening? You ever wondered that? And maybe these expectations aren't even ones that you put on yourself. Maybe they came from somewhere else where you bump into someone and they're just like, oh, wow, you're still struggling with that? Huh. I I thought you had matured past being so desperate for your mom's approval. I, like, I, actually, I thought that you decided that you weren't going to buy people things as a way to try and get them to like you. I thought that you actually got control over your weight problem. I thought that you said that you weren't going to lecture people about politics over Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> and this stuff, when people say this stuff to us, where they're pointing out something that we know that we've gone back on, it makes our blood boil. And, and partially it's because it, it feels like what they're saying is rude and ignorant and condescending, and, and, uh, and it is. But like uh, partially because by the time you hear something like this from someone else, you've already said it to yourself more times than you can count. I gotta tell you, nobody is more upset about a relapse than the person relapsing. And part of us, when we're in the middle of it, thinks to ourselves, like, if I was more spiritual, or maybe, like, if I loved God more, or he loved me more, or if there even was a God, I wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. You ever yell at God for not just, like, fixing you once and for all? God, why can't you just make it done? And... If you have yelled at God for doing this, you're in great company because almost all of the New Testament writers yell at God for not fixing them once and for all. Here's another example from the Apostle Paul. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Paul describes like whatever his ongoing issue in life as a thorn. I think of it as a splinter. You ever had like a little piece of wood stuck under one of your fingernails? Isn't that the worst thing ever? It's so small, but it hurts so bad. It affects your entire body. It's so frustrating. And it's not going to kill you, but it will distract you. Like you're trying to do normal stuff, and then all day you're just like, (sighs) it just stings. And you're like babying it and you're working around it and it's taking so much of your time and attention and mental energy away from what you want to be investing in and it's just there and it's not getting any better because the reason that it hurts so bad and is like taking so much away from the rest of your life is because the root problem is still there. It's still in there. You can't get it out. And the more you pick at it, like the deeper it goes and you're like, oh, are you kidding me? And you're like, what, do I have to go in and get a surgery? That seems extreme, for a splinter, but I, I feel like I, this might, my life might be over. I can't do this anymore. And we don't know what Paul's thing was, but you know what your thing is. And you have probably said to God, 
uh, something similar to what he says to God. Like, God, you gotta just take, can you just take it away? What are we doing here? You know I love you. Like, you know I'm trying. Like, I know you can do miracles. Why can't you just deal with this thing once and for all so I don't have to struggle with it? And God's response to Paul was this, verse nine. Each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. In other words, I'm not gonna get rid of it, but I will give you the grace to continue to struggle against it. And God has said something like this similar to me before. And you know what my response to him was? I don't want your grace. (laughs) I want to be done. I am sick of dealing with this. Why does this have to keep coming up? And he's just like, I'll give you grace. And it's like, you know what? Save the grace. Use the fix it. Like, that's what I want. I'm sick of it. I don't know how much you know about AA, but you've probably seen enough movies that you know that, you know, they, like, different people in recovery, they get up and share, right? And they take the podium, and then they're like, hi, my name is Cynthia. That's not my real name, but um, I'm just a person in the program, right? And I'm an alcoholic. And it's been 45 days since my last drink. And then they go on to share where they're at at that moment. And I think it's interesting, like, there is a very highly intentional uh, pattern behind why they say it that way. Notice it's not like, I used to be an alcoholic, I was an alcoholic, I am, right? I've got some freedom from this thing, but the reason why I've experienced some freedom from it is because I'm still fighting against it. And I got to tell you, the the same thing is true about all of us. Just because you've gotten free from something doesn't mean you don't still have to fight it. And it's when you confidently let your guard down that you fall down. And this is true about the godliest people you know, including the ones whose lives are written about in Scripture. They're not above this. In fact, I want to give you just an example of that today. It's from the Old Testament. Just a minute, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. But to give you some background... It's about one of the most famous characters in all of the Old Testament. His name is David. And he was a simple shepherd who was anointed to be the next king of Israel, even though he didn't come from a royal lineage, right? Typically, it's the son of the current king, but God selects him. And David, even from a young age, proves to be a mighty warrior. He's eventually anointed king and, and becomes one of the most well-respected kings in all of Israel. But he had his flaws. He just, you know, he hid them well. Uh, at least for a while. And he even managed to hide them from himself, really. And most people have the ability to do this. And the reason why we're able to sort of hide our flaws or our weaknesses or our addictions, even from ourselves, is because weaknesses are often overdeveloped strengths, right? They're good things that help us, but when left unchecked, they become bad things that hurt us. And an example of this in David's life was that he was incredibly brave. Like he had no trouble rising to a challenge and taking on insurmountable odds and it benefited him. Like uh, the story that probably most of us know, even if you're not like a churchy person, where uh, David uh, goes to deliver some wine and cheese to his brothers who are fighting. And it's like, what kind of rations are these people getting? It's weird. But um, 
He takes him to him, and there's a giant, Goliath, who's threatening the army. They're all scared, and David's like, I can deal with this, and he takes his slingshot, and he goes out, and he faces the giant by himself and wins. And so, I mean, this clearly helps him in this circumstance. But, and by the way, like, the prize for beating Goliath was getting to marry the princess. So it's kind of some sweet perks. Um, but the issue is the current king, who, who actually does know that David is anointed to be the next king, this is kind of annoying, he has second thoughts and he's just like, I don't really know if I want you marrying my daughter. I don't know if I like this. And so he gives David an impossible challenge and is like, you know what? I forgot to tell you that after the Goliath thing, you gotta do another challenge in order to marry my daughter. And David's like, oh, geez. And this is what it was. I'll let you guys in on this. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 25 says this. This is Saul talking. Tell David that all I want for the bride price is 100 Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. And David was delighted to accept the offer. Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines, overachiever. <laughs> then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. And so Saul gave his daughter, Michael, to David to be his wife. So weird challenge. Okay, we can all admit that. Some of you are grossed out. David was delighted. He was delighted. Because fighting was his forte, right? Like the violence required here didn't even phase him. And he's able to defeat the enemy and win his wife. Uh, but this trait didn't always work out well. I know some of you are just still trying to get over the foreskin part because you're like, there's way more foreskins in this sermon than I was expecting for a post-Easter sermon. But this is just the way it fell, guys. I think that David's addiction was powering up and taking what he wants by force. But how many of you know that's not always the wisest option? Sometimes it benefits you, sometimes it's a strength, sometimes it's an enormous weakness. Like one time, Dave was on the run from King Saul who's jealous of him and he wants him dead and he and his men were doing freelance security uh, for ranches in exchange for food. And keep in mind, everybody knows who David is because at this point, he was anointed to be king, uh, the next king when this king dies. And he was a famous warrior who had done all these amazing things on behalf of the people. And so he sends a message to the rancher who lives in that kingdom and says, hey, we've been protecting your ranch for a while. Uh, I'm going to need you to, to, to feed us. And this was that guy's reply. 1 Samuel 25, verse 10. Who is this fellow David? David sneered. He knows exactly who he is. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? I love that he's like, I've never heard of him. But he knows his dad and his family and all that sort of stuff. It's pretty interesting. Should I take my bread and meat and give it to a band of outlaws who, comes, uh, who come from who knows where? So this guy is intentionally insulting David, and David takes it personally. He doesn't really appreciate this, and you can tell by what happens next. Uh, it says this in verse 12, David's young men returned and told him what Nabal said, and David replied, get your swords, as he strapped on his own and took off towards Nabal's home with 400 men at his side. So maybe a little bit of an overreaction, okay? But when your bar for normalcy in life is, if you wanna marry the girl, you're gonna need to get me 100 bad guy foreskins, okay? Your scale for weighing reasonable reactions to things is skewed. 
And David's go-to response in life as we watch how his character unfolds is essentially this. I want what I want. In fact, I deserve it. And if you don't give it to me, I'll power up and take it by force. Unfortunately, in this interaction where he's charging in with these 400 people to just decimate this place because one person didn't give him something that he wanted, somebody intervenes and they help him calm down and zoom out and see the big picture before things get out of hand. And more importantly, I think, than just this one moment is that David has an epiphany in this, through this interaction that evolves him in many ways. And in fact, he begins to incorporate this sort of big picture thinking into his own self-talk. And we find this in pieces of poetry that David writes, including this one in Psalm chapter 16, verse one. And this happens after he has this encounter where he's sort of talked down from doing something destructive. He says this, Psalm chapter 16, verse one, keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. You are my master. Everything good I have comes from you. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other, other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices or even speak their names. In other words, what David is saying and really praying here is, God, I am gonna trust you to keep me safe instead of trying to do it all myself. I'm gonna trust your wisdom over my impulses because you are relentlessly good to me even when I don't deserve it. Also, everyone I really look up to in life honors God and that's the kind of person I wanna be. And when, I've seen this enough, like when people elevate their addictions and their preferences above you, it always backfires. And I don't want that in my life. This is the essence of his prayer in Psalm 16. And this prayer is level-headed in a way that his reaction in the previous story isn't. And meditating on these ideas helps him to exit his addiction. Because he is constantly praying and meditating along these lines, he has this ability to create some distance between his impulses to do whatever he needs to do in the moment to calm himself down, feel better, shift his mood. He puts some distance between that impulse with this act of meditation and any action that he would take. And because these meditations are focused on this big, God-centered picture, it changes his mindset towards approaching everything. He has enough time to sort of be like, you know what, I'm about to do something stupid. And he's able to really curb a lot of his issues. Now, this may surprise you, but step 11 talks about this idea in recovery. This is what step 11 is in A. Seek through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for you and the power to carry that out. And I gotta tell you, prayer and meditation are code in both scripture and in AA for a renewed way of processing life. Like when we pray God's way, we exit a, a self-centered uh, perspective and we enter into a soul-centered perspective. 
Ancient mystics called this contemplative prayer. That's what we see David doing in the Psalms. But this is not how most of us think about prayer today. Right? The reality of it is most people pray as a way of grasping for control, not giving God control. Isn't this the way most of us see prayer? Like, God, there's some things I'm gonna need you to do. We see it as like us giving God a to-do list. And the only other people I do that with in my life are my children and my employees. And God is neither of these things for you. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to help you, doesn't want what's best for you. But a lot of us, this is sort of how we pray. This is the extent of our prayer. Like, this is where it ends. I think a lot of Christians seem to think that the point of prayer is just to suck up to God enough so he'll give you what you want. But that is a radical misunderstanding of both prayer and God. Scripture frames prayer as this way to widen our view and see from God's perspective, to help us understand our desires and his will for our life. And most of us were not taught to pray this way. And those of us that maybe were don't want to have to take the time to actually do it. And this is why Jesus' disciples, who grew up in Judaism and prayed a lot because they were required to, they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. This happens in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And the reason they ask him to teach them how to pray when they kind of technically already pray a lot is that they recognize that he prays very differently than they do. He doesn't pray like them at all. In fact, he kind of prays like David. And what his disciples learn from him is a lesson that like few of us, I think, have even learned today, which is that prayer is not about changing God, but becoming willing to let God change us. And this type of prayer had a profound impact on David and his addictive cycle. And when we, we see this, like in later stories, after we start seeing these psalms sort of unfold around this time period, and we see him like writing out these prayers and regurgitating these prayers and meditating on these ideas, we see stories that make it evident that his life has changed. Um, one time he stumbles into so Saul's camp, this is a little bit later on, this is the king that's trying to kill him. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 7. David and Abishai found Saul asleep, and Abishai whispered, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. No, David said, don't kill him. Who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed? Same guy. Same guy that was just like, um, hey, I think you guys should feed us. And that guy was just like, eh, I don't even really know who you are. You could be a bandit for all I know. I'm not going to feed you. And David's like, 400 people, let's slit everyone's throat, let's burn your house to the ground. <laughs> now we have a scene where he's on the run from somebody who is actively trying to kill him, who he would have reason, no one would blame him for taking this guy's life. And he's just like, no, I am not, I, everything that I want in life, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be a person of character. I'm going to rely on God to bring to me what he's promised me, I'm not going to rise up and take it by force because that's not the kind of person I want to be. That's not the kind of person God has called me to be. And so he doesn't do it here. 
contemplative prayer, has, I think, has transformed him. It's given him victory over his compulsions, and it felt good. And I think during this stretch of his life, he felt like a better person. He liked himself more. He realized that he was benefiting the people around him. And I'm sure he told himself, like, I am never going to go back to that thing ever again. And I'm sure he meant it. And he didn't for a long stretch of time until he did. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. David was walking on the roof of the palace and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he turned around and went back inside because that's creepy and he knows it's a no-no to just keep watching. No, that's what it should have done, but he doesn't do that. So, so David sent messengers to her and to get her and he slept with her. Later, she sent him a message saying, I'm pregnant. And so after a while, David told his general, put her husband on the front lines and then pull back so that it'll be killed. And you know what this is? Relapse. Relapse. David sees something that he wants, realizes he can't get it by being a person of character and living life God's way and decides he's going to power up and take what he wants by force. And he does it once and then it snowballs, right? And then it's easier to do again and again and again. And this thing that he's actually been able to be in recovery from for such a long time, he sort of breaks back into it and how quickly it escalates into territory that he's never even been in before. It just happens so fast. Because this is what addicts do. Right? We're like, well, I screwed up. In this little way, I might as well go all in. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't supposed to have carbs and I ate that one corn chip, you know, so I might as well polish off these two gallons of ice cream and these other two pizzas and dip them in French onion dip. You know what? That seems to be the only reasonable course of action here because I already blew it. How does this happen? And I'll give you a hint. There, in this stage of David's life, because the Psalms are, are dated um, uh, as to when the, approximately they're, they're being written, when you look at the Psalms, uh, there are hardly any Psalms written around this time of David's life. Because David had abandoned what kept his addiction at bay. And like all of us, when you stop doing the thing that you did to get well, it is really hard to stay well. When you stop the patterns and the habits that helped you get free, it's really difficult to maintain your freedom. And the reality of it is when people have no rhythms for contemplation of slowing down, breathing deeply, zooming out, inviting God into their perspective, when people don't have any rhythms for this in their lives, they become neurotic, exhausted, and angry. And does that not describe our entire culture? Because we don't do this. And when we get to this place of like feeling neurotic and exhausted and angry in our attempt to control the uncontrollable, we decide we're going to play God instead of trusting God. And when that blows up in our face, we decide we need to cope to switch our mood back. And we've got our old trusty addictions right there on the shelf. And so we lean into them and then they escalate way quicker than they ever have before. And it never works. And this is why step 10 in recovery says this, to continue 
to take a personal inventory and when you're wrong, promptly admit it. I think what David learned at this season of his life that he learned and had forgot and had to learn all over again is that we can't eliminate our addictions overnight in the way that we want to. We have to manage them every single day because recovery isn't a one-time deal. It's this ongoing journey. It's the continual process of receiving and utilizing the grace necessary to manage the splinter in your life that you wish you could pull but can't. That you keep demanding that God free you from, but he's like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna continually give you grace. And I think this is why the writer of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, which is a chapter we've been going back to again and again and again in this series, why he sort of closes off this, this little section in this way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. He says, take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so those who are weak and crippled will not fall but become strong. Now remember, this, this is a section that starts off with, because we're surrounded by so many other people who believe in God and who believe that you don't have to be a slave to the things that you've kind of gotten in a compulsive rhythm with to make you feel better, but they're just making you worse. We should throw off all of the weight that is slowing us down especially the sin that we easily get tangled up into. It's like our favorite thing. We, we get caught up in it, but it's bad for us. And we should run towards the race or the path that God has laid out for us. And he gives us a lot of advice about this. And at the end of all this advice, he says this. So here's the thing. You're gonna get to the place where you've been running for a while and you threw it off and you're ready to give up and you're ready to quit. And in fact, part of you is just like, I am sick of the routines I have to keep up to keep this part of me at bay. And you just wanna be done. And some of you are just like, you know what, I'm better. I don't need to worry about this anymore. I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to work the process anymore. And I gotta tell you that it's in the moment where you think that you will never ever fall that you are about to trip and slide right back into the thing that you promised yourself you would never ever go back to. And so take a new grip, strengthen your hands, mark out the path, and keep walking it. Keep walking it, one foot in front of the other. Again and again and again. And when you stumble forward, make sure that you're doing it on the path because there are people there to pick you up, to partner with you and to help you move forward, to help you remember what you're doing and why you chose to do it this way. And I gotta tell you, whatever the thing is in your life that has sort of come up to you a few times in the series, maybe it is like a, a physical thing, maybe it's a substance, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a habit. And God has just been like, that has more power over you than it ought to. And it is having a negative impact on who you are, on how you see yourself, on your ability to do certain things in life. 
I have something more and better for you. And I'll tell you this, as soon as you get a little bit of freedom from it, you are gonna be tempted to stop doing the things that God invited you to be a part of to help you get free. And once you do that, it's gonna be real hard to stay free. I just wanna challenge you today to write down and get real with yourself about the stuff that helped you get free and commit to those things. This is why I think it's so helpful and important for people to have a consistent habit of showing up to church on a consistent basis because there's a place you gotta go and people you gotta see who they know what you're going through and they know what you're dealing with and they are gonna know if you're a little bit off and you need that in your life to keep you on the path. This is why it's healthy to be in a group where you're not just sitting and hearing a sermon, but where you're interacting and sharing about your life because people are gonna know details that they wouldn't know of you just sitting in a row. And because they have access to those details of your life, they can lean into your life in ways that they wouldn't if they didn't know. But you gotta keep up with that in season and out of season. That's why it's so important for us to like spend time reading God's word because all the stuff that's sort of flying at us that gets us to be overwhelmed with life and the world and politics, all this stuff that makes us feel so overwhelmed, like the, the word of God helps to calm us down. We need these moments of contemplation where we sit and are still and invite God to give us his perspective instead of telling him what we think he ought to do from our perspective. And when you practice these things over and over and over and over and over and over, it begins to transform who you are. But the second you think that you don't need it, you will get out of practice. You become spiritually out of shape and you lose the ability to fight against the things that want to take you down. In AA, there's this sort of saying that the whole time you were in your recovery journey, your addiction didn't die. It's just hiding doing push-ups. It's getting stronger so that when you give it a window, it can easily take you down again which is why you don't give it a window. You keep putting into practice the practices God has given you to stay tethered to him and his power and his perspective and his people so that you can stay free because God has a path that he's marked out for you. Your life is about something. There's something that God wants you to do in this world. And if you are constantly being shackled to an addiction, you won't be able to do it. And that's the true tragedy of life. And I wanna pray that during this season, a season that most people are just like, you know what, rhythms, patterns, spiritual disciplines, you know what, I'll wait to reset in January. This is why addiction runs rampant the month of December because people make a mistake on Thanksgiving and decide they're just gonna go buck wild until January. And then when January hits, they can't get it back together. Don't let this be your story. Invite God to make it something better. Would you bow your heads with me across this room? God, we are grateful 
specifically during this series as we have been wrestling through just the things in life that trip us up. And God, we are grateful that you show us the best way to live, that you give us your word. God, we've seen during the series that all of these things that originally AA and, and so many different recovery programs have sort of formulated these 12 steps. They're really just your wisdom that you laid out in your word about how to live a healthy life, a holistic life, a life of shalom, of your divine peace, balance, and wholeness. And God, I just pray, some of us, we're struggling in massive ways right now. And God, we are trying to claw our way out and we need your help. And God, I pray that we would use these messages as reference points, that we would listen to them again and again, that we would cling to the truth within them. And that more than anything, it wouldn't just be knowledge that we grab hold of, it would be actions that we put into practice, steps we take, a path we walk so that we can truly experience life to the full. God, I know that you want to grant your freedom to all of us in this room from so many things. Some of them seem small, some of them seem massive, but they're all big because when we can't get on the other side of them, they're big to us. And God, we rely on you this morning to give us your perspective, your wisdom, and your power to keep running the race. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.